I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. When Marla Ridenauer began her journalism career in the mid-1970s, she was told that a woman couldn't write about sports played by men. She helped knock down that ridiculous barrier. In fact, she's been covering the NFL since 1981. Nearly all those 40 years have been spent writing about the Cleveland Browns, which means Marla deserves a Purple Heart. She covered numerous Super Bowls, Kentucky Derbies, and a final British Open played by Jack Nicklaus. She's also been a longtime friend and a bright light of enthusiasm in a cynical business. Hey, Marla, welcome to the show. I'm so happy you're joining us. It's great to be here. It's an honor to join you. This is, I, I love your idea. I don't know if honor is the correct word, maybe dishonor, <laughs> but we appreciate the honor if you want to go there. I want to know, though, I'm a little confused. Is this the real Marla? Because most times when I'm with Marla Ridenauer, we are in a losing locker room interviewing losing NFL players about what went wrong. We've done that a lot in the last 25 years or so. So this is the real Marla, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you want to get into a contest about winning percentages I'm sh- or losing percentages, I'm, I'm sure I probably still got you beat. Well, you started covering the Browns in 1981. I was hanging around with the Bengals since like the late 80s. And I covered a lot of Brown stuff, too, although I actually wrote about the Browns. I didn't really cover them. But uh, you and I were together with a lot of Ohio NFL teams. We saw a lot of losses. I mean, what is your career winning winning percentage, Marla? Well, the last time I figured it up, it was in the threes. But I would say the Browns. Yeah. (laughs) But I'd say the Browns have probably uh, risen that to maybe the fours. Um, You know, when you go back to 1981, that's a lot of. That's a lot of bad Browns right there. Um, a lot of L's, a lot of L's. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, we were kind of like ATF agents. They would send us in to search for the black box, and we would figure that out, what happened to this crash. So we were providing a service in that regard, right? Right. But the, And then you, when you add in the fact that when I was at the Dayton Daily News, they took me off the Browns beat for like a year and a half, so... I missed the end of the 85 season and 86 when they were 12 and four. So that skews me down even farther. (laughs) I like the fact that when the Browns moved, they sent you, you were in Columbus then, they sent you to cover the Bengals. And so you and I were on the same beat and Dave Shula was the coach. And well, we all know how that went. (laughs) Yeah, but that was, but that was fun. I mean, there was, I still look at, look at that, how much fun we had, you know, how, I mean, it's, and you could practically walk into assistant coaches, you know, offices in Cincinnati. That That's a thing of the past. You know, I sort of look upon those days fondly and standing with Mike Brown at practice, you know, and chatting with him. And, you know, I mean. Yeah, the access was great. Yeah, I mean, I'll well, say that. I do remember Jeff Blake, the quarterback, saying to me, why can't you write something positive? <laughs> And, and I said, well, you have to win some games. <laughs> I mean, what do you want me to write? I right, mean, right. Again, we don't write about planes landing safely. So win some games. And you were like my shrink, right, in 96. <laughs> you, were, you were like always, the, you know, Paul McCartney getting better all the time. And I was, I uh, can't get any worse, John Lennon. So, so I appreciate all the, all the money that I owe you for being my shrink. Well, that's that okay. Day. 
<laughs> but hey, let's go to a more sunny time, a more sunny moment. We're going to have plenty of negativity to go over. <laughs> but let's go to the British Open. In 2005, you and I both got to cover Jack Nicholas's final British Open at St. Andrews, Scotland. And we were there for that. And I know it's a treasured moment in my own career. How does it stack up and what you got to cover? I'd say it's right up there with the biggest moments I've ever I've ever covered. I mean, you can talk about affirmed and Aladar triple crown and the drive and the fumble, and we can talk about those later. But oh, just, we will. Don't worry. Just <laughs> yeah, but just for the moment itself. I mean, although I did read a little bit of what I wrote this morning, kind of in a little diary I kept, and I really wasn't as emotional as I thought I was going to be. But it's obviously still like a. I mean, one of my most treasured memories from my career. Yeah, I think uh, at the time I used to play a lot of golf. Back, you know, it's back before I had kid, <laughs> kids and I had time. Um, but just going to the old course itself, the birthplace of golf, and then you add in that it was a major championship, and then you add in that it was Jack's final open. There was just a lot of history swirling around there. Do you have any specific memories about that week? Well, it's you and I probably have the favorite one, and I, I did look this up. To, it was on the ninth hole when Jack's teeing off at the tees above our heads, and you and I were crouched down kind of below this hill. And Oh, I know where yeah. you're going with this. Wait a minute. <laughs> Let me set this up. I, I was only there because Bob Baptist, our longtime golf writer at the Columbus Dispatch, uh, did not go. And so Jack Nichols was always used to dealing with Bob Baptist. So... All right, go ahead. Jack hits his tee shot. So Jack hits his tee shot, and he comes down off of this little this little hill and walks right right beside us, and he looks over at you and I, and he says, and well, he's specifically looking at you, and he says, where's Bob? And, I mean, here he is in, like, the most memorable round, you would think the most memorable round of his life, and he's wondering where in the heck is Bob Baptist. I just, I will never forget that as long as I live. And the cool thing about that, too, is... You know, there were a lot of people there that were there for the first, like, three or four holes. Then they didn't go out to the back nine, which kind of juts out into the water. So there weren't that many people out there. And then they, you know, picked up, like, 15, 16. They rejoined Jack. So I felt like that was almost a private moment for you and I with Nicholas that not a whole lot of people got. Yeah, we got to walk. I think we walked all 18 holes. I mean, who wouldn't, right? It's Nicholas. His playing partner was Tom Watson. It's the old course, and you're not you're going to sit in the media tent and not go out and walk and see the detail and experience it. Uh, I know I wasn't going to miss it. Um, I remember too the course itself. It, it you see it on television, but when you're there, it sounds crazy to say, but it's not really impressive. I mean, it is because of the history, but it doesn't look like an American golf course like we're used to, right? It just kind of looks like this rolling, I don't, I don't want to say cow pasture, but it's just real flat. I mean, rolling, but the grass is kind of brownish and there's not a whole lot, there's no trees. It just, there wasn't a lot of, a lot of uh, things that we're used to seeing, right? No, I mean, it was, I was struck with how brown it was. I mean, it's like, you know, it's not like they're spending tons of money. I mean, it's a public course. I mean, they're not spending tons of money, but, but there really aren't any trees. I mean, there wasn't much shade, you know, I think I was sunburned even though I had sunscreen on, you know, but I mean, I mean, I think the beauty of it was, 
is the part that's, you know, when you get close to the water. Yeah, and just seeing seeing Nicholas, um, you know, he played really well. I went back and looked at that. I'm like, if he had putted well, I mean, he would have made the cut at his age, which was un- unbelievable. And even on the last hole, right, he does a ceremonial on the bridge. And I remember looking at that going, this looks like something out of a movie. And, you know, people are, even Tom Watson was crying. And they go up to, you know, they go up to fairway. And then Watson had to make a putt to make the cut, and he made it. And then Nicholas had a putt, probably a good 12-footer downhill, curved. And, of course, Jack being Jack, he made the putt. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the perfect, I think that's what was what made it perfect, even though, you know, he didn't play, you know, like lights out. I mean, it was just the perfect, you know, the competitor finished it off, you know, perfectly. Yeah. And you mentioned the town. What what a great place, right? I mean, the course basically just sits as part of the town. I mean, you walk 30 yards off the 18th fairway and there's a street, there's cars, there's stores, there's pubs right on the fairway. Um, did you expect to see that? I mean, you've seen photos, but, but to see it in person... You know, what kind of perspective did that give you? Well, I guess I was most impressed by or, you know, surprised by the fact that the town is small and it's all kind of crowded in there. And, you know, you can walk everywhere. I mean, I would highly recommend for anyone that wants to go somewhere that's definitely worth it. Um, So but, you know, it was kind of a. I mean, you know, if you've got the graveyard where old Tom Morris is buried and, you know, all those, I mean, you know, like churches that are like partially destroyed, but they're still there. I mean, it's just wars. Yeah. yeah, From the wars, you know, and the bombings. And I mean, it was just I mean, the whole thing has got a magical quality to it, I think. Yeah, it's funny. The one thing that was only thing I was a little disappointed in, we didn't really get the typical British Open weather. I think there was like nine holes where it rained sideways and the wind was howling. But you're right, we got a lot of sunshine, and which was great. It was fun, but I was kind of hoping to experience that, you know, off the North Sea where the storms coming in and guys are hitting balls all over the place. But uh, but still, what a magical, what a magical place. And the town had a few pubs, right? Oh yeah, we. Uh, in fact, the um, I think it was my last day there after the round was over. I. Uh, I went to one that was right by the 18th, right outside the course, and the locals treated me like a local. It was great. They were very friendly. It was really something. Yeah, and then at night, you you would leave the pub, and then you'd be walking back towards your dorm room at the university, and you'd cut across the, the course, and people were out walking around on the course. It's, it's like a city park, even during the tournament, right? There were people walking their dogs on the 18th fairway. Yeah, I mean, it's like... I mean, you don't, it's not like it's hallowed ground that you don't tread, you know, you don't, you fear to tread on. It's like, it's part of, you know, it's part of everyday life there. I mean, that's what's, you know, I guess when I contrast it to the times I've been to the Masters in Augusta, it's like you, you're afraid to mess up a blade of grass. Well, you know, that's not the feeling at St. Andrews. Well, that was one of the great moments that we shared together. We also share a home state. Um, I'm from Kentucky. Although, actually, it's northern Kentucky. I was five minutes from Cincinnati across the river. Cincinnati didn't like us. Kentucky didn't like us. But I'll say I'm from Kentucky. You're actually from Kentucky. (laughs) You're from Louisville, or as they say, Louisville. Uh, And you grew up there. And then you went to Eastern Kentucky University, and you started your career at the Lexington Herald-Leader in 1976. Uh, What was it like to break into the business in your home state? Well, I was lucky that I was one of the three finalists for the job. And 
even though I had like one semester to go in college, I mean, I lucked out and got, got the offer. So I had to do it. Um, you know, it was, I mean, nobody gets really to start their career at a major metropolitan daily. So, I mean, I really, really, you know, was in the right place at the right time. Um, now I only covered women's sports basically. Although Why is I, that? Um, that's, they hired me to cover the Kentucky lady cats. That was kind of my niche. They didn't really, you know, they weren't ready for to put a woman on a, a major, you know, men's sport. Mm. So, um, um, but like I did horse racing, I covered Keeneland, the Kentucky Derby, you know, may, you know, small college like Transylvania basketball. I did, you know, men's games there. But generally speaking, I wrote about the Kentucky Lady Cats basketball team. And, you know, I wrote columns about, you know, women, you know, in the area that were, you know, good athletes. So they weren't quite ready to have you go do men's sports. That's <laughs> that says the late 70s, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean. It was, that's part of the reason I left there was I had, you know, I, I thought I was ready and there was a, you know, some things said behind the scenes that they didn't think, you know, women could do it. So that's when I came to uh, Dayton Daily News in 1981, February of 81. And six months later, I was covering the Browns. So you did prove that you could do it, certainly have throughout your career. But before you left there in Lexington, you did get to cover horse racing, uh, the Kentucky Derby. You covered Affirmed and Alidar, all three Triple Crown races in 78. Um, what was that like, especially that that duel between, that famous duel between, you know, Affirmed and, and Alidar, who couldn't, couldn't quite get Affirmed at the tape? I mean, I just, it was, the, the coolest part was the Derby one because, they wanted me in the fi- inside the ropes at, by the finish line to kind of capture the celebration after the race. And, I mean, you can't see the race. All you see is the horse's ears, basically, from, you know, that perspective. <laughs> but being there at the end, I mean, I, there was no hint at the Derby that this was going to be a historic triple crown where these two are dueling it out. But I just, it was really special to be inside there, you know, for the start of something. And then, you know, the, the Preakness is not, doesn't stick out as a memory, although it's cool because the, all the horses in the race are all in the same barn. So it's, you know, it's very convenient, but Belmont Park, man, that is an eye opener. That's like a city. So um, it was really quite amazing to go to the Belmont. What was it like for you to cover not just the race day, but the week leading up to it? Well, it's definitely an incredibly different experience because you have to be there on the backstretch like between six and seven in the morning. I mean, that's when all the interviews with the the trainers and, you know, occasionally the jockeys will stop by. I remember I did a story on Steve Cawthon being harder to interview than the horse. He was the the jockey for Affirmed. Would, he was you tough, know, huh? Well, yeah. I'm, there was a picture in Sports Illustrated of him in a car, and I'm standing right by the window trying to get him to roll the window down, and he wouldn't roll the window down. That's why I ended up writing a column about it. <laughs> but, um, but you know, your, your, your work is done, you know, your interviews are done between like 6, 7, and 10 a.m. But, I mean, it is cool because you see, back then you would see like, I remember Jack Klugman used to own horses. I mean, you never knew you know, what like TV or movie star or who was going to show up. Um, you know, you have these little scrums with the trainers, you know, at their barn. And I don't know. And then I would always go to like some 
Portage on and change clothes to go to the press box, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you have a great moment with the famous uh, L.A. Times columnist Jim Murray at a Kentucky Derby? Yeah, and I can't remember what year this was, but um, obviously Jim, you know, he had seriously, you know, issues with his eyesight. And so... Um, like it's the post parade and he calls me out. We, you have like a little spot where you can sit like, you know, out on the balcony. Now I don't think that's where the press box is anymore, but it was right. The, no, it's not. It no. was overlooking the finish line. So he calls me out there and he tells me, he says, I want you to be my eyes for this and tell me what you see. So, wow. you know, I'm saying, you know, well, there's all these, you know, military people, you know, surrounding the track and this and that. And he's like, well, what, you know, what military branch? And, you know, like he's asking me questions like details, like what are, what color are their uniforms or what are they wearing? And, you know, like, so it was really, really, I like, I, I feel so fortunate that I was introduced to him by my old boss, Cy Burek at the Dayton Daily, that, you know, he trusted me enough to let me set the scene for him, so to speak. Um, that's, that's, you know, he's one of the legends of all time in this business. So. And you helped him with a column. Yeah, I, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was a great column if Jim Murray wrote it and you helped with it. That's had to be great. You mentioned the Dayton Daily News and you did go there in 1981, uh, after five years in Lexington. Um, and when you get to Dayton in 81, they give you the beat to cover the Cleveland Browns. And no woman had ever covered the Browns on a daily basis like that. Um, were you a story because of that? Well, my boss, the sports editor, Ralph Morrow, said, I don't want you in the headlines. I mean, basically, he said, you're, you're not going to be the story. I mean, he told me that, you know, right off the bat. But there was a, you know, when they first sent me to training camp, um, Sam Ritigliano was the coach. Training camp was at Kent State. Um, we're in this little tiny office of his. In I mean, I swear to God, it was almost like a military base. It was so Spartan. Um, but he lays out, he says, he tells me, you know, Art Modell is given approval that you're going to be able to go in the locker room. But he laid out, like, this is how, you know, you're going to have to behave. He says, I expect you what? to. Yeah, he says, I expect you to behave like I would expect my daughter to behave. Um, oh, God. He's like, you know, lays out all this. And he also says, when you're after games, you're go I want you to yell woman in the locker room. When you wanted you to yell that? Yeah. So, well, to set the scene for this, at Cleveland Stadium, there was a little post-game thing where the, inter where the coach talked. He kind of stood up on a little soapbox thing. And the, everybody scrummed, you know, scrummed around. And then you open the door to that office and you go right into the locker. There was a door that right into the locker room. It also opened right by the shower. So um, anyway, he said, as soon as you walk through that door, I want you to yell woman in the locker room. So, you know, I did that faithfully because, you know, that was the parameters. I, I would, you know, I was holding up my end of the bargain. So. This will be, if I ever write a book, this will be the first chapter. Um, years later, I'm on Venice Beach with a couple fellow journalists. One of them is my best friend from college. We run into a former Browns defensive lineman, Elvis Franks. And I mean, I didn't know him that well, but the first words out of his 
mouth when I introduce him to my friends is, let me tell you a story about Marla. Uh-oh. I have no idea what he's going to say. And he he proceeds to tell me that the, all the guys that had lockers right by that door banded together and they were all ever as soon as they would hear me yell woman in the locker room they would drop their towels at the same time oh oh but after several weeks of doing this they gave up because i didn't i never noticed wasn't there a time where you were covering a browns game in cincinnati when uh, they weren't going to let you somebody wasn't going to let you in but like a browns equipment guy or somebody came that to actually might have been the first season uh, my first season on the beat um we're, yeah, we're in, I'm in the Browns locker room in Cincinnati when, and the guy, like one of the cops, security guards, whatever he was, like is re- trying to throw me out because the Bengals wouldn't let, you know, women in their side. So this is in Cincinnati, the game. Yeah, the game's in Cincinnati, but the, um, the guys, like I said, ready to toss me. And then the equipment guy says, she's with us. His name oh, was wow. Chuck Cusick. I owe him forever. Um, I mean, he really came to my defense because he saw what was happening. You know, he's picking up the dirty towels and came right over there and said, she's with us. So, Oh, well, good, uh, it good was for really Chuck. Good. I, mean, yeah. I mean, there were people, right, that, that did see the absurdity of it all and just tried to help. And, you know, because of um, people like yourself and other women sports writers, um, you know, you did break down those walls and, and pave the way for so many uh female journalist today, which is great. I will say this though, you know, like I covered the Bengals, you know, Super Bowl in 81 and they wouldn't let me in the locker room. So I was covering the opponent. So that led to, you know, some memorable moments for, you know, I think that was the ice bowl year too. So, um, so even the Super Bowl itself, they had different standards depending on which team it was. So you got to go in the 49ers locker room after they beat the Bengals, but the Bengals wouldn't let you in the locker room at right. the Super Bowl. So I turns out I'm and because I was working for an afternoon paper, some of the, you know, the morning guys were still writing. So I'm kneeling at Joe Montana's feet like I could barely practically touch him. I was so close um, because there weren't that many. But the, no, the Bengals wouldn't let me in like. I remember when they played the Chargers, I wasn't sure what the Chargers policy was. So I just ducked in there before anybody said anything. And Chuck Muncie gives me this look like raised eyebrow look, but he didn't say anything or, you know, holler for help or whatever. You know, I just dashed in there. So, you know, we were kind of on our own. It was not a mandated league thing at that point. Wow. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today. So that first year in 81 ends, you cover the Browns, but it ends with the Bengals being in the Super Bowl. Right. And, well, you know, they lost, right? Right. <laughs> but, but here's the thing that's funny when you look back on the NFL in Ohio in the 1980s, that was a great decade. I mean, the Bengals went to two Super Bowls. The Browns went to three AFC championship games. Now, granted, 
that the teams combined to go over five in those games. <laughs> but those are pretty good teams. You know, you had Bernie and Boomer and, you know, there's a lot of talent. That must have been a fun time to cover the NFL in the 1980s, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, and I mean, I can't even say that the drive and the fumble were that. I mean, yeah, they were bad, but you're still in the championship game. I mean, you know, I mean. Well, of course now, because you're being so positive, I got to drag you into negativity. <laughs> and you've already mentioned the drive and the fumble. And I want to know what it was like to be at those two historic games. 1986 AFC championship game, Broncos, Browns in Municipal Stadium in Cleveland. Um, what was it like to cover that particular game? Well, I'm just, the drive was just, you know, we, they, we were allowed to go down on the field for the final two minutes. So I'm watching that from the, let's just say the 30 yard line when the Broncos are driving my way. Are you and, behind the Browns bench? Is that where you are? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're on the Browns side of the field, but you're all, like I said, the Broncos are coming towards you. And, you know, there's that crucial third down, you know, I think it was third and 16 or 18. Third, actually, it was third and 18. Yeah. and Less than two minutes to go. Right. Third and 18. All of, all of us in the media are thinking, like I said, we're going to the Super Bowl, you know, even though you're seeing what Elway is doing. But then that third down, you know, you go from the euphoria of the getting the sack to set up third and 18, and then you see the pass. And I was really good buddies with Carl Hairston. I mean, the ball just barely cleared his fingertips. You know, he had his arm, his hands up. I mean, it's just almost like frozen in time. I can see that ball, you know, coming over the defensive lineman. And it's just like... I don't know that. I mean, the deflate. I mean, we were, sh I guess we were just as shocked as the players because, you know, we're standing there all giddy, kind of like, you know, not, not believing that this is going to happen. What was, so, so LA, John Elway makes a third and 18 completion for 20 yards to Mark Jackson to keep the chains moving. What was the feeling like on the field? Could you feel the tension among the crowd? Was it loud? What was it like on the field itself? I don't remember it being very loud. I think everyone was sitting there in horror, but I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, if I can remember exactly what it, the sound, I'm sure it was loud, you know, when they're trying to make noise, you know, during the play, but I don't, I, I just remember it being relatively everyone in shock. Yeah. And Elway completes the drive. He they go 98 yards, 15 plays, touchdown pass to Jackson with 37 seconds left, forces overtime, and then, of course, the Broncos kick the, the field goal. I still I'm have sorry. the play-by-play -play in the closet, so I'm not throwing that away. Have you <laughs> taken it out and looked at it again? Anything, notes that jump out to you? No, but I I, I still have that in the foam. I mean, I keep those things, oh, God knows. Even when I cleaned out everything early in the pandemic, I couldn't bear to throw that out. Yeah. Well, a year later, not even a full calendar year, really, uh, you're in Denver for the rematch in the AFC Championship game, Browns at Broncos, and it really wasn't a good game the first half. But the, the Browns rallied, and now you get down to the last minute, and the Browns are driving to tie the game. And, of course, you know, with a minute 12 left, uh, Ernest Biner, as he's going into the end zone, fumbles the ball at the, at the one-yard line. Were you on the field for that also? I don't think I was on the – I don't remember that one being on the field, although I do remember one time going down to the field and 
Denver where we were, they were throwing beers on us. So maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe we were. Um, but um, that one, I, I mean, God, it was, I felt horrible because, you know, I, Biner is such a good person, but. And I he mean, played they, so well. I mean, but, they came but, back. Like he and Bernie, like had a, they were played out of their minds in the second half. I mean, at halftime, I, we, I thought it was over. I thought the Browns were going to get drilled. So, um, the my biggest takeaway from that was interviewing Biner after the game. I mean, what was that like? Well, I mean, we're they brought him out of the locker room and we're standing like by this concrete, you know, support thing and out, you know, at the stadium outside and. I mean, I, he was just so classy about it. I just can't imagine the pain, you know. I mean, that I got to give him credit. I mean, those guys, all those guys back in the day, even going back to Sype, there were no, like, you know, post-game interview, you know, you stand at a podium. It was like waves after waves of, you know, sometimes of reporters coming. And Biner stood there and, and took every question, you know, and was just such a class act. Well, you mentioned this guy's name. We talked in Browns, Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick coached the Browns, what, for five seasons in the early 90s? It was and 91 to 95. 95, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're around Bill Belichick, and the thing to remember is, well, first off, the Browns, the Browns fired Paul Brown and they fired Bill Belichick, which... <laughs> Which, when you think about it, that's that's got to be some kind of, like, record. Fire Paul Brown, the guy who basically invented modern football, and Bill Belichick, the guy who's dominated it in the last 20 years. But Bill Belichick was not the Bill Belichick we know now as a great success when he was coaching the Browns. Tell me about covering Bill Belichick in the early 90s with Cleveland. Well, he's in a sense, he was sort of the Bill Belichick we know just because he was – so tight-lipped. Um, I was, you know, living in Columbus then and driving two hours, and you'd be in a great mood. I'd be listening to Luther. I'd be all jacked up, and <laughs> 30 seconds into Belichick, your day is shot, you know, just, because, <laughs> you know, like, just because he he just had a way of putting a damper on on the day with his, you know, I only go by what I sees and I'm not a doctor and, you know, those kind of comments. But, I mean, but the most classic moment, well, I actually have two, but the first one was um, when he's under fire and they're, you know, chanting Bill must go, you know, outside the locker room after the games. and You could hear it outside? Yeah, yeah. because the that it was that same little room where Sam Ritigliano talked, where he was talking, and there's like, it's just like a, wooden door separating it from the concourse so people would stand out there and yell during the post-game press conference at him so no, it's um, like the french revolution they got a guillotine up they're ready <laughs> yeah but so it was like like it was during the week after that was you know all going on where i wrote something for the dis i wrote a note in the dispatch about how he had the brexville police guarding his house and um, back then, the media room had a payphone. So one of the PR people comes up the next day and said, Bill's going to call you on the payphone. So in the payphone, we had a little room. I shut the door, you know, to talk, <laughs> you know, and because I knew this wasn't going to be good. And, Is that where um, Superman would occasionally go in? You know? Yeah. So anyway, he's like livid that I would write this and that the cops are guarding his house. And Why? You didn't? Why? And I said, well, 
Bill, you know, I didn't put your address in there, and I really don't think anybody's going to drive up from Columbus and drive around Brexville looking for, you know, the protective detail at your house. But this went on. I mean, I swear to God, it felt like 30 minutes. I mean, 30 minutes. I don't know how long it was, but it felt like I don't think Belichick has talked for 30 (laughs) minutes in the last decade. But I believe you. I believe you. (laughs) He never says anything, but he's he's haranguing you for 30 minutes. It it seemed like forever. Uh, All I know is I'm trying to figure out how am I going to get off the phone with him and be respectful? Um, I just can't. And I'm like racking my brain, like, what do I do? So finally I say, well, Bill, you know, I don't think you know me very well if you think that I would do anything to endanger your wife and kids. Um, And I basically said something to the effect of, I think we've said all we can say on this matter. (laughs) You know, like, I mean, technically I sort of did hang up on him, but I had to figure out a way. Whoa, you hung up on Belichick. (laughs) Well, Sort of yes and sort of, I mean, like I said. No, I, no, no, <laughs> let's say it. Marla Ridenauer hung up the phone on Bill Belichick. Well, I don't know. But anyway, needless to say, our relationship with all the Cleveland media was adversarial to say the least. But I think he might have warmed up to some of us since. But it was very, very frosty when we were in the 90s together. Well, I, I was at a Super Bowl media day once when it was, I think, the um, Patriots and the Panthers down in Houston. And I just spent most of the media day just trying to hang around Belichick's little stand where all the media were around just to see if he would crack. And I remember even t- tossing in a few oddball questions. And, you know, he would look at you like you had three heads, you know, and he just was not going to play the game. And all right, I got it, you know. The NFL is making $9 billion. They don't need this guy to, to, you know, to entertain you. And it's not even entertain you. It's just uh, inform the fans who were reading these stories or watching the TV news or listening on radio. But he wasn't going to do it. And I guess you can't argue. Look at all the Super Bowls he's won. The I will say this. After the last game at Cleveland Stadium in 95 was the most, you know, forthcoming he was you know, maybe not after the game, but he brought his family down on the field. I, rem- I I read back one of my stories after that. Maybe it was a day or two later. He was very <clears throat> forthcoming about his emotions and what he was feeling with his family. That's the only time that I remember actually maybe seeing a little bit of the inside of Belichick. So that was the day in December of 1995. It's a horrible day in Cleveland sports history. And I'm sorry, Browns fans, I keep bringing up these bad things. But, um, you know, (laughs) it was Marla. Marla was there. I can't help it. I got to ask her about it. But during that season, the Browns got off to a decent start. And then news leaked that Art Modell was going to move the team to Baltimore. And everything went to hell. And it led up to the final game at Memorial Stadium where the Browns, you know, they ended up beating the Bengals, of course, <laughs> but but you were there. That and at the time there was not this deal that the Browns were going to get to retain the the colors and everything, right? And in the, in the history, it was like this this was the, the last game for the Cleveland Browns. What was it like at Memorial Stadium? I don't. Yeah, no, there was no deal done yet. About everyone thought this was it. I mean. I, uh, my memories, most vivid memories of that are being down on the field at the end of the game. Um, It was, you know, the people are throwing stuff, you know, 
unscrewing seats and throwing stuff onto the field. And I mean, I really did think they were going to burn the place down. I mean, did thing, were things landing near you? Well, I, I mean, you know, in the end zone and, you know, that kind of thing. And the, it, I mean, you know, when you think back to the day when they're throwing batteries, well, this was like, this could have hurt somebody, you know, like, and I remember looking over like, in sort of the tunnel areas on both sides of the dog pound, there were these um, chain link fences that are, that's all between, that's all there is between the field and the fans. And I'm thinking they're going to bust this fence down. I mean, people snuck in, you know, tools and stuff, you know, they're going to, or they're going to climb it. Or, I mean, I just, I thought it was going to be utter mayhem, you know, at the end of that game. I really did. I mean, I, I literally was scared for what was going to happen, you know, to the players, you know, to anyone who was out there. Um, but then, you know, the players, when it was over, they went down to the dog pound and they all shook hands and talked to the people. I mean, that really diffused what I thought was going to be a very ugly situation. Um, yeah, it ended up being a very touching scene because it really displayed the love between the team and, the you know, the players and the fans. And I think you're right. I think it diffused a moment. Yeah, I mean, I mean, because that was like, you know, I mean, was almost every guy on the team was down there talking to, you know, these diehard people who have been, you know, sitting there for, you know, so long. And But I, I still have a piece of the a broken seat that I picked up on the way out that day. It's got the number 16 on it, and it's all cracked and broken and... It's a wooden seat. You have it. It's a piece of a wooden, you know, just one slat of a seat with the number on it, just because I wanted to remember the day. And I also have a a thing framed from the mayor that it, they even put these on our seats in the press box. About it was like a little warning thing about how they wanted you to behave and let don't disgrace the city of Cleveland by our behavior today and. I have well, that I think in, they disgraced the city of Cleveland by taking the team away. Well, yeah, I mean, he had a lot to do with it. So, um, but anyway, I saved that. Those are my two mementos. And then I also have, after the place closed down, the PR department gave us a a plaque where it's got light bulbs from that were in the scoreboard. It's kind of oh, a cool wow. thing. So, oh, wow. yeah. you know, those are all in my office. It's quite a, like a kind of a cherished mementos from that day. Yeah. I mean, you could actually hear people dismantling the stadium, right? You could hear saws. And yeah, I mean, there was, yeah, you could hear saws and yeah, people snuck. I, it's a, I guess I shouldn't be surprised because they used to sneak kegs of beer into the in little dog houses and take them to the dog pound. So I'm not surprised they were, <laughs> I'm not surprised that they, you know, snuck that stuff in. But I mean, yeah, it was, it was dark and gray and eerie and, and frightening in my opinion. And I think, if anything, it just, I mean, the love between Cleveland and the Browns is really something something special. I mean, you've been covering that team and around that team pretty much every year, just about since 1981. Um, what is it about that relationship between that football team and that city? Well, I think it's more about the, you know, the blue-collar work ethic, the, you know, battling, you know, this decades-long fight to get back to the Jim Brown glory days. I mean, it's just the, I mean, there's always been kind of that hard scrabble mentality around the team that they're not, 
you know, there's, there's been some divas, but that's not the general mentality. You know, it's just, you know, the, but these people are so invested. I mean, I remember doing a story one time about a guy who punched a hole in his wall during the drive, you know, and it's still there, you know, like, um, (laughs) You he know, put a frame around it like Keith yeah, Moon or something. Yeah, it's got a, I think the 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 girl who told me this said her dad hung a picture or a mirror or something over the hole, but it was still there. You know, like, I mean, just the the passion that you don't want to squelch that passion. And, you know, it's I think the players appreciate that. The coaches appreciate that. All right. So you're that gray, eerie scene on the lakefront when the stadium is literally being dismantled. The team is being uprooted and moved away. That has to be the saddest day in Cleveland sports history. You were there for that. But years later, you were also in Cleveland for probably the happiest day in the city's history, at least in 52 years. You were there on June 22, 2016, when the Cavs had their victory parade three days after they won the NBA championship at, at Golden State. What was that scene like in Cleveland? Well, I mean, I'm still sort of amazed that there were no barricades on the street. I mean, it was, I, I have to tell, I have to set this up because, you know, I wasn't the beat person. Um, I was covering the team with Jason Lloyd, but they were only allow a few of us to follow LeBron's car during the parade. Um, and Jason and, decided he was going to stay at the end, kind of in this little media pen where the, you know, they were having the ceremony and he let me follow LeBron's car. So I walked, you know, it seemed, it took forever. I mean, it was so, the car was inching along, but. So you're, so you're right behind LeBron James's car, like secret service or something. Well, right. I mean, I have a picture in my office. I'm looking at it right now where, you know, I'm like in the third row behind LeBron, the bumper of the car, the whole, the whole way. Um, but be, like I said, there's no barricades at the beginning. They try to use cops with bicycles to sort of like, keep the people back, but that didn't even work for like five minutes. No, that's done. (laughs) There was a million people there. Think about that. First championship in 52 years, a million people turn out in downtown Cleveland. It's a sea of humanity. That was just following LeBron. The people got closer and closer and, you know, eventually they got somewhat, what are you doing here? You know, like I bailed out right before he turned into the area where they were having the celebration, you know, for TV. Um, but it was just, I mean, the, I don't, it was like everybody was so like together as one. There was no, you know, like, I mean, obviously they all wanted a picture of LeBron. So it, it was no wonder they were, there was such a crush, but you know, there was people that came from like Texas and you know, God everywhere, all over the country just for this moment. I mean, I mean, you could have had more than a million people. I, you know, if it had been a little bit better organized, um, the, the whole thing was just the joy, the, just the, the scenes that you saw along the way. My favorite one was actually before it even started when the team got together 
in the what Quicken Loan what it was Quicken Loans Arena then, and then they came out to get on you know in these cars and these floats, and Ernest Biner is there, and mm. he's like, and he talks to Ty Lu, Ty's like, well, what are you doing for the parade? And he you know he had his I think Bert Biner had his wife with him too. Ty invites them to ride on their their flatbed. So he oh, invited. I mean, it was just that was just such a moment. Like, I felt like there were so many ghosts of Cleveland erased. You know, like the drive and the fumble and the shot. And I, I just felt like that that when I was so cool to see Lou invite Biner up there for that, just to help him. You know get over this, you know, and enjoy the the euphoria that he really wanted in Cleveland. That was, to me, that was my, probably my favorite moment. Right, yeah. That historic comeback down 3-1 to, to come back like that and, and win that title, the first one in 52 years for the city. What a great, what a great moment. Marla, you're still doing it. You're still, you've been covering sports for what? This is your 45th year, I believe? Oh, God, I, I, I'm, I'm past counting because, yeah, you don't want to remember. Well, all right. But but you know what? In all seriousness, what an amazing career. You got to cover some great moments, big-time athletes and coaches. You got to go places. Um, what keeps you going? You're still, you're still fighting a good fight for the Akron Beacon Journal. What keeps you going? I hate to say this, but I really want to see the Browns get to the Super Bowl. I mean, not for the fan part of me, but I feel like I've spent, you know, since 1981 covering the NFL, and I've you know how you always root for the good story. I'm rooting for the good story for me, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was always the answer, right? Somebody says, do you root? And you're like, I root for myself. Right, well, right. right on, especially on deadline. Whatever the best, easiest story right now, that's who I'm rooting for. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, you, things do not come full circle in life. I know that, but I'm still, you know, I don't want to walk away when they seem to finally be turning it around. So, you know, we'll see if all the demands of, online journalism and late nights and everything. We'll see if I can make it. Well, thanks a lot, Marla. We really appreciate it. And we wish you all the best. It's been a lot of fun to uh, recount some great moments in your career. Thanks so much. It's great being here. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcast or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and her audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. 
There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix, dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.